Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a conversation between Douglas Wilson and Alan C. Carlson about Carlson's book, The American Way, Family and Community in the Shaping of the American Identity, now available from Canon Press. As you review American history with regard to the uh, waxing and waning of healthy attitudes toward the family, has it ever been quite as bad as now? Um, In some ways, no. It's really bad right now. I was pleased to meet Alan Carlson just a few minutes ago. Uh, Welcome to Moscow. Good to have you here. I want to talk uh, about your book, The American Way, that uh, is being released by Canon Press, re-released by Canon Press. Um, But before we get into that book, I wanted to ask you very quickly about your method of writing. How do you, how do you write? Do you, are you a mad uh, burst of inspiration and you type madly or you chip away at it? Uh, do you, how, how, do you, how do you produce your books? Well, I always have a bit of writer's block at the beginning and I have to finally just force myself to sit down and start writing. Once I do that, and particularly if I've got my research done in advance, which I always try to do, I just, I kind of go into a trance and it can last for days. Okay. Uh, and I can produce something quite quickly, actually, once I'm in the trance. But I should not be interrupted while I'm in the trance. So okay, so is- you, you do a bunch of research, get a pile of stuff, then you have a barrier to break through. To get, in, to get into the zone. Precisely. That's how it works. And again, I do the research in advance, um, and sometimes quite detailed and meticulous research. A lot of it and sometimes into archives. I'm a historian, have a PhD in history by training, and so I love being in archives and finding old documents and so mm-hmm. on. But yeah, I've got to get into the trance. And I also work best in the morning. Uh, okay. By uh, constitution, I'd rather stay in bed, but if I get up at 4 a.m., and work from four to noon, I could produce a lot of stuff really right. good. Right. So that's, so I really do need to get up early and get going. And when you're in the trance, your wife can just push a bowl of cereal in the door. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> Pretty close. <laughs> All right. Um, so uh, let's talk about uh, the American way. And the subtitle is, has to do with family. Uh, uh, yeah. Family and community and the shaping of the American identity. Okay. Um, so uh, let's go back and ask, when would you say the American identity was shaped in this regard? Was early on? Was it something that had to mature and come together later? How? No, it hurt. it's from the very beginning. The American identity was built around not individualism, not capitalism, but it was built around uh, professing Christian families living in communities uh, focused on bearing and raising children. Um, the Jamestown's colony did not do it well in the right. early 17th century, but the, the, the Puritans did. And mm-hmm. a, another book I've done called uh, A Family Cycles, I look at the Puritan family utopia from the 1630 to 1680 or so, when it worked extremely well. And they, they set a model of family life that was actually distinctive in human history. Um, the uh, uh, the American model of family living, which has recurred over uh, over again, uh, f- at least in four different cycles, uh, has been a f- heavy focus on marriage, early marriage, heavy focus on procreation, where large families, I mean, we're talking an average of nine children, 
mm-hmm. was 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 normal. An average, of- an average of nine. Uh, there's some communities in uh, in uh, Puritan uh, Massachusetts where uh, the average was closer to eleven. Okay, uh, these were a lot of kids running around. <laughs> uh, 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 marriage seen as basically indissoluble and lifetime. Um, uh, the uh, focus was also on the home as a as a religious institution, as a, as the place where uh, Christian children would be shaped and sheltered. And something called homeschooling is a little misleading, but it was pretty close to what we call homeschooling today. It was the norm, the common expectation. So that was the American approach. And what I've tried to do in the American way was look at the 20th century. How did that play out in the 20th century? And because the, the dominant interpretation of American life is that we're a bunch of flaming individuals and mm-hmm. individualism and individualistic liberalism has been our normal path. But I said, even in the 20th century, that's not true. Uh, and other books have looked at other times in, uh, in, in the American past to say the same thing. So it's, uh, uh, I start with uh, the first, and I think still the most openly pro-family president in the United States, who was uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt. He was a bright man, he, you know, an author of many important books. Uh, he also was the first one to understand the challenges facing American life on a social side, to see the uh, I should say the dark side of the feminist movement, the first one to see the dark side of the population control movement, the first one to see the dark side of uh, of a culture um, far too interested in uh, acquisition and in, uh, I guess, what's, again, not the, not the happy side of a free enterprise system, but the dark side. The mammon side. The mammon side. And he was, he wrote some really wonderful essays on this. Uh, and so he, I start with him and then I look at how that proceeded through other characters in the course of the 20th century. Would, would you say that, um, that this, um, unique American emphasis on the family with these, those four things that you mentioned, uh, came under serious assault with the sexual revolution in the sixties, or was it, I know there were signs of trouble before that, or there were the enemies of family were marshalling their forces. But when would you say uh, open war was declared on the family? Well, there, there have been times when American family life has been strong and there have been times when it's been weak. And that, again, that, that's the thesis of the book, Family Cycles. So uh, in some ways, the dark side has reared its head after about two or three generations of successful family life. Bad things. Cyclic. Cyclic. Over, yeah. And bad things start happening. And why is that? Well... Christians can understand original sin, sin comes sloppiness. <laughs> uh, we get we we take things for granted that can't be taken for granted. That's sort of the common American story. We get it right, and then we bottle it up uh, <clears throat> because we forget some basic lessons about, uh, particularly about human character and human human nature. So um, things went bad between about 1880. Uh, and uh, and and, the, and about 1930, then went really bad. And uh, this was the era of uh, the first, we'll call it the first era of modern sexual re- revolution, the the flapper area mm-hmm. uh, after World War One here in the United States, uh, with similar nasty developments taking place in Europe. It's when uh, the proponents of uh, abortion, contraception, 
and so on, pushed through the legal barriers that were there, people like Margaret Sanger and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, that all came earlier than the, the 1960s. The 60s. It right. was going on 80 years before. Um, and so there were, there were cultural battles taking place, and there were cultural warriors fighting those battles. But the, the book Family Questions looks at, uh, again, Roosevelt. I, th I greatly admire most of what he did, certainly in the area of social policy. He was the first important American politician to understand the modern problem mm -hmm. and to do, try to do something about it. Um, I look at, the, um, at, uh, at episodes... And again, a positive episode of uh, what I call the rise of the maternalist movement. Uh, this was the, I'll call it the good side of the feminist cause, okay. uh, which came out of figures such as Jane Addams, originally Julia Lathrop from my hometown of Rockford, who had become the first woman to head a, a federal agency, the Children's Bureau in the Department of Labor. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was created in 1912. What did she believe in? She believed in... Uh, Strong marriages to protect children, strong marriages, protection of the wife and the mother in the home as a full-time homemaker and a mother, mm -hmm. and family wages for fathers. That is, these, the economic Being system. Being able to support the family. Be able to support a family on, 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 on a single wage. And the maternalists were quite strong uh, as a political force, a political movement from about 1900, well, really into the early 1960s. but. Uh, uh, the uh, they made sure, for example, during the New Deal, which you know, conservatives really don't like positive references to the New Deal, but on social policy, the New Deal was pretty good. Again, the maternalist views were all adopted in the in the um, uh, New Deal social policies uh, of the 1930s. That is, a family wage for men, protection of the mother at home. Uh, the early initiatives uh, there included uh, uh, maternal care uh, and uh, infant care and lessons in that through the Shepherd Towner Act, again, a maternalist victory. Um, the, uh, all, every federal program that tried to help the unemployed in the 1930s was premised on a family wage. Some of it are things that shock people today. For example, if you went and worked at the work, Works Progress Administration, men got paid a dollar an hour, women got 50 cents. Uh, and it was all designed to reinforce the family wage system. Okay. So would you say that this um, cyclic pattern, it, uh, Cotton Mather once said, faithfulness begat prosperity and the daughter devoured the mother. So, <laughs> so, so what... Uh, or Deuteronomy, Jeshuan waxed fat and kicked. So <laughs> when we do it right, when family, when we're oriented correctly on the family, blessings flow from that. Indeed. And, and then when we have this wealth and this these blessings, we become self-sufficient and think that we've done it ourselves, and we start kicking. We start precisely. We get, like I say, we get we. Uh, we forget the sacrifices that went into creating and building a healthy social order and the eternal vigilance that's required to keep it going. So would you say, uh, uh, as you review American history with regard to the uh, waxing and waning of healthy attitudes toward the family, has it ever been quite as bad as now? Um, in some ways, no. It's really bad right now, in part because our vehicles are communication. I think amplify everything that's bad and negative. 
with that said, it's uh, if my view of cycles is true, we've been in a bad cycle for about fifty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's running its course right now. If, if, right, and I actually do think it's very possible. In fact, I think if if America still is alive, spiritually and socially and culturally, we're good things are going to start happening. Right. And are happening right now. We just some ways don't really quite know where to look. Because in the long run, stupidity is not a long-term strategy. Well, and the, uh, let's face it, they, not face it, let's, the truth is, the wonderful truth is that Christian family and sexual ethics are the answer to the current disorders in the world. They're not the problem. Right. They are the answer. And finding a way to package that for young people is a great challenge. I think facing pastors, social activists, uh, uh, of, of all kinds that we have to find a way to do it better, but the material's there. In, in your book, the natural family, the introduction or chapter one, there's a manifesto. Like these are what the things we intend to do. The whole thing sounds pretty optimistic to me. Like, <laughs> we're going to do this. We're going to do that. And we're going to do the other. Um, so, but you believe that that kind of familial reformation is a real possibility. Well, it's 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 necessary if we're going to have a future. But I think it is a real possibility. And you're right. For me, <clears throat> my ethnic background, uh, I'm 100% uh, of Swedish ancestry. And Swedes are dour, depressed people. Where in fact, we're not really content unless we're sad. That's your superpower. <laughs> that's our superpower. We, we, we take comfort in being sad and kind of relish it. But So being an optimist is not the easiest thing. Uh, but I am. I, th- I think actually, again, I think things are gelling right now. Uh, uh, they're gelling in many different places. We'll, again, being a historian, I won't know where they are. Give me 25 years, I'll tell you what's going on right now that's important. Right. Uh, I think I see some things happening, some very important things happening in different places. Um, but no. To be an optimist right now, is, of course, is 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 lunacy. But I, I think I am. All right. So let, let me rewind just for on a couple of points, and because I'm sure that some of our viewers are are going to wonder about this. You mentioned Theodore Roosevelt, uh, uh, who yeah, Theodore, who who was in a number of things uh, progressive um, in politics, but you're saying he was a social conservative, right? Uh, and then you mentioned the New Deal, which had introduced a lot of things that are coming back to haunt us now, or, but you're saying in the New Deal, their emphasis on family was a necessary corrective? Was, I think, was at the very heart of what they were trying to do in what we'll call the early American welfare state. And it worked mm-hmm. until it was how, how, did, how did it work? It worked. It worked. Uh, well, again, it focused on uh, family wages for men. It focused mm-hmm. on maternal care and a mother a support for motherhood uh, for women. Mm-hmm. Uh, the chapter in in the American Way on the New Deal uh, you know, talks about all the specifics that were involved in that. But again, the Children's Bureau said the only way the Children's Bureau issued reports and, and proposals, and most of which were adopted, which said the only way for children to to thrive is for their mothers to be home with them on a full time basis, and for the fathers to be to sustain uh, and to receive a, a, a decent wage. Mm-hmm. And that's what every New Deal policy implemented. Uh, again, I mentioned you know, uh, 
the difference between wages that men and women received in um, mm -hmm. uh, WPA. WPA and related programs like that. That was true in every other re relief program that was a heavy focus. When women were in WPA, they also received, uh, if they were going to receive a wage, they also took classes in home and home economics. Uh, as a mandatory <laughs> as a mandatory requirement, which is something which today, of course, would drive a feminist absolutely batty. But that was how the system worked. Uh, and you're saying that that was something, an insight that the people doing this were fighting for, not just a residual holdover from oh, precisely, previous tradition. Precisely. They were fighting for it. And the women that ran, that were very predominant in the New Deal during the 1930s, such as Frances Perkins, the sec first woman to hold a cabinet post, Secretary of Labor. Uh, the the women who ran the Democratic National Committee, the women's, the women's branch of the Democratic National Committee, the people who shaped the social security system um, were uh, all committed maternalists. Uh, you may remember, for example, one of the, uh, when, they, when the social security system implemented the uh, Ask how it worked. Here was one of specific. The uh, implemented the uh, uh, homemaker's pension, which came in 1938, 1939, Social Security Amendments of 1939. Uh, that was something a man, a, a woman who'd been married to a, an eligible man for at least five years uh, and was still married would receive her That's own pension of 50% of what the man had earned. Mm -hmm. It didn't work the other way around. It was only a, a woman, even if she was paying into the system, could not convey to a man a, shall we say, a stay-at-home dad pension or whatever we would like to call it. Right. It just didn't work. That was not allowed. Right. That was not until court decisions under feminist influence came around 1970. Which mandated that I was alive then. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> which mandated equality. That's how the system worked. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was part of the of the family wage system, which was particularly powerful in the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, <clears throat> was what might be called a cultural family wage. Well, how did that work? Well, it did this. It did, to use crude language, cult, uh, job segregation by gender or mm -hmm. by sex. Uh, uh, men in the 1940s, 1950s, and 60s were doctors, lawyers principals, um, uh, engineers, and so on. Women, almost without exception, were nurses, elementary school teachers, secretaries. Uh, they weren't lawyers. Uh, and it, uh, to us today, or at least to the contemporary mindset being taught, that just seems well, how weird and terrible and discriminatory that was. But what it did was it reserved the best and highest paying positions and jobs for men. Why? Because so they could support families. They could support families. And there were surveys done which showed that 90% of Americans understood that and said, well, sure, that makes sense. Uh, of course, uh, women's job is supplemental. Now, the whole system worked only so long as most American adults were married, uh, mm -hmm. uh, as long as marriage was still the expectation and, the, in fact, the, the uh, result. It wouldn't work in a hookup culture. It would not work in a hookup culture. It wouldn't work in a culture where 50% of, of, of adults over 30 aren't married uh, or something. Because then, the, the, I should say it, the, the discrimination side of it comes is amplified. Yeah, yeah. And it, it no longer has a purpose, actually. At that point, it's just, well, guys get paid more than women, and that's not fair, right? Right. 
it was only fair when guys got paid as husbands and fathers. Uh, so, so it worked until that's again what fell apart in the 60s and 70s. So l- let me um, finish with this question. It might be too big a question, but if, if you're talking to someone who likes your thesis and buys into it and says, yes, the natural family is a big, is a, an important ingredient in the es- establishment of any healthy culture, um, and free market economics and freedom and liberty are also a good thing. If I'm hearing you rightly, you're, you're, you're weighting the family issues far more heavily than um, like free market economic conservatism, right? Is it, it, and it's how true. So um, if you're talking to someone who holds to both, right? Yeah, this is a good thing and this is a good thing. How would you weight them? Uh, two to one, 10 to one? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, be- <clears throat> I believe in free markets. Right. It would be nice if we had one sometime. Uh, <laughs> give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> because what we have, uh, and Teddy Roosevelt do this as well as anybody else, is great concentrations of wealth reshape the laws and the rules of the marketplace to right. protect great concentrations. We get, we get what I call capitalism. <laughs> yes. Or crony capitalism, as it's also been called. And that, we should not be surprised at that. It, you, have to, uh, you have to break up the great trusts, as Roosevelt would have put it. And, and we're seeing that right now in our own problems with big tech. Uh, exactly. So, for, for example, um, if there were an intervention against Google or Facebook uh, by the government to defend the family, you would have a hard time shedding tears over that. I, w- I would jump in the streets and start a parade <laughs> or something like that. No, I would not at all. Not at all. But where capitalism, or I, w- I would say, well, free market economics works best is with family-held companies, almost of any size, as long as they're family-held. Um, uh, one model for this actually was the old, in, to some degree, still to a small degree, the current German economy, which always favored small family-held businesses. Uh, that's changed in the last 20 years quite a bit. Uh, that was why Germany had, for example, uh, up until they entered the EU, had about 500 different little breweries. Every little yeah. town had its own brewery, which had been owned by the family for- Since 1300. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and they were protected. Yeah. I'm nothing wrong. Nothing not 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 only is that nothing wrong with that. That's exactly what you should do in an economy right, is right. protect those little family held enterprises. And I've known uh, uh, someone had to raise money at certain points for conservative causes. I know some very large businesses, billion dollar companies, which are still closely family held. Yeah. And those are good people that run them. Uh, yeah. They are still have their feet on the ground. They still. Uh, they still go to church with r- real people uh, right. there. Uh, they also know the, the problems that it takes to run a business. It's not easy. There's always yeah. problems and so on. But they, uh, their feet are on the ground. They're tied to local communities. They have families they care about. They have heirs they want to pass the business on to. The real danger lies in well, the, the uh, publicly held companies, mm-hmm. the Fortune 500. Uh, that's where... and. I've been preaching this. Impersonal corporations. And I've been preaching this for years, and I'm finally glad to see some conservatives finally saying, oh, well, yeah, you mean like big tech. I said, (laughs) yeah, like big tech. (laughs) (laughs) Look what they're doing to you right now. I've been warning you about this for a long time. Pay attention. And not just me. Uh, One of my great great heroes uh, intellectually is G.K. Chesterton and his uh, concept, along with Hilar Belloc, of distributism, which is 
the, a free society rests on widespread ownership of property. Right. A lot of people opening open, owning some property, not one guy owning every, right. all the farms in a given county. Uh, that's that's what's also necessary to a healthy life. So uh, apparently, you've been busy on this uh, theme for m- many years, and you've had some impact. Um, uh, uh, tell me what impact you had with regard to child tax policy. Well, um, again, being a Swede, I'd, it's hard for me to, uh, to to brag, but I'll say something here. Right. Okay. All right. uh, I, in 1988, uh, on the basis of some things I'd written on tax policy and the family, I was appointed by Ronald Reagan to what was called the National Commission on Children. Um, it uh, was this freestanding commission. Uh, 36 members, 12 appointed by the president, 12 by the Speaker of the House, 12 by the uh, president of the Senate. Democrats control both houses of Congress, so it was 24 Democrats and 12 Republicans. And the Democrats put their first team on the commission, the uh, Marion Wright Edelman, who was Hillary Clinton's uh, mentor. Bill Clinton, governor of Arkansas, was on the commission. Uh, the head of the American Federation of State, County, Municipal Employees, the head of the National Education Association. Sounds festive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Several very prominent birth control advocates were placed on the uh, on the commission. So it looked like conservative ideas were doomed here, because uh, on the conservative side, there were a few people like me who were way down on the uh, uh, totem pole. We had a couple of senators, uh, Dan Coates of Indiana, for example, was appointed, and one or two other somewhat prominent political figures. But we were, we were second-teamers or third-teamers uh, compared to the Democrats. To make a long story short, the chairman, Jay Rockefeller, senator from West Virginia, was actually a decent man, an honorable man. And about six or seven of us on the, on the conservative side worked hard to mobilize evidence to Try to make two things. First, the Democrats, following their their new mode of action, wanted to turn the Children's Commission into just another grab bag of new new government programs for children. Uh, with children as the as the target, as the focus, and how can we get support and programs, new programs for children? We're all handouts the, for children. Yeah, handout, but also uh, handouts for the people who would work with children, handouts for the teachers, handouts for daycare workers, handouts for this, that, and whatnot. That's what the Democrats thought they were going to do. Uh, uh, on the Republican side, we, we tried to, we pushed the argument, no, the, the only way, and again, this goes back to the maternalists, the only way to help children is to help their parents become better parents and for families to become stronger and more autonomous. And then the second thing I wanted to do, because I was writing on family tax policy, was to expand the tax benefits that go to families raising children. And through kind of a small miracle, which has not gotten enough attention, the final report of the commission endorsed both of those principles. Um, It did turn the argument, and it states quite clearly, the way to strengthen prospects and possibilities for children is to focus on strengthening homes. And even it did say several times, oh, married couple homes is the mm-hmm. is clearly the best place for children to grow up and be. So that was astonishing. And then the second thing, our principal recommendation was to create a new child tax credit. Um, uh, the initial idea was $1,000 per child for every child, make it refundable. Uh, 
And that was the proposal. And it got a lot of attention. This was 1991 when the report came out. Got a lot of attention. And in fact, it's one of those rare cases where you can kind of trace what happened. Uh, uh, Bill Clinton was on the commission. And Bill was not particularly good on these things, but he was a good politician. And when he was president, the child tax credit was adopted finally, not at five thousand dollars, but at originally four hundred. But this was on top of the existing dependent, uh, uh, the uh, existing uh, standard exemption, mm -hmm. personal exemption. This was new and child focused. It had a lot of limits, and some people, both rich and poor, didn't get it. But it started something. Then President Bush, two thousand one raised it to $1,000, expanded its availability, uh, and now it's been expanded again. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, part of, <coughs> this, this will get me in a lot of trouble. Uh, don't, uh, don't, don't, don't give anybody my address here. Uh, part, mm -hmm. of, part of Joe Biden's current proposal for this massive $3 billion to the Senate and whatnot includes the final fulfillment. You meant $3 trillion. Oh, I'm sorry. sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. it starts, it starts a billion here, a billion there. Soon we're talking about real money. Uh, <laughs> right, $3 trillion, $3.5 trillion, or who knows, maybe $6 trillion. But anyway, the part of that is the final is, is finally fulfilling the, the, whole, the whole package. And it would mm -hmm. be a $3,000 permanent child tax credit uh, refundable. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, if you have no tax liability, you get it. It becomes kind of like a child allowance, mm -hmm. but it also would be available even to the to the richest. I'm I'm not endorsing the whole three and a half trillion dollar package, but Obviously that part not. of it I is You're the fulfillment with. of what we wanted to do, and I think it's a good policy. Republicans have had a, an alternative. Uh, Mitt Romney um, they put forward an alternative about a year ago, which is also good. Uh, and if I actually believe Republicans would do it, uh, I would happily support it. It has a certain elegance to it. Right. Uh, but well, like, there again, ever since Teddy Roosevelt, the problem with Republicans is when they do get into office, they tend to focus on the problems of the banks and the, and the Fortune 500 corporations and the very rich. And they really don't have time for children. That's been the Republican problem for a long time. But anyway, the child tax credit as it exists right now and as it may grow is something at least I had a small hand in and pushing it along at, at a couple of key points. Very good. And I think it's a great policy. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out the book, The American Way, Family and Community in the Shaping of the American Identity by Alan Carlson. Now available from Canon Press.